This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alan Quatermain by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 19 A Strange Wedding one person, however, did not succeed in getting out in time before the gates were shut, and that was the high priest Agon, who, as we had every reason to believe, was Sorais's great ally and the heart and soul of her party. This cunning and ferocious old man had not forgiven us for those hippopotami, or rather, that is what he said. What he meant was that he would never brook the introduction of our wider ways of thought and foreign learning and influence while there was a possibility of stamping us out. Also, he knew that we possessed a different system of religion, and no doubt was in daily terror of our attempting to introduce it into Zuvendis. One day he asked me if we had any religion in our country and I told him that so far as I could remember we had ninety-five different ones. You might have knocked him down with a feather. And really it is difficult not to pity a high priest of a well-established cult who is haunted by the possible approach of one or all of ninety-five new religions. When we knew that Agon was caught, Nilepta, Sir Henry, and I discussed what was to be done with him. I was for closely incarcerating him, but Nyleptha shook her head, saying that it would produce a disastrous effect throughout the country. Ah, she added, with a stamp of her foot, if I win and am once really queen, I will break the power of those priests with their rites and reveals and dark secret ways. I only wish that old Agon could have heard her. It would have frightened him. Well, said Sir Henry, if we are not to imprison him, I suppose that we may as well let him go. He is of no use here. Nyleptha looked at him in a curious sort of way, and said in a dry little voice, Thinkest thou so, my lord? Eh? said Curtis. No, I do not see what is the use of keeping him. She said nothing, but continued looking at him in a way that was as shy as it was sweet. Then at last he understood. Forgive me, Nyleptha, he said rather tremulously. Dost thou mean that thou wilt marry me even now? Nay, I know not. Let my lord say, was her rapid answer. But if my lord wills, the priest is there, and the altar is there pointing to the entrance to a private chapel. And am I not ready to do the will of my lord? Listen, O oh my lord, in eight days or less thou must leave me and go down to war, for thou shalt lead my armies. And in war men sometimes fall, and so I would for a little space have had thee all my own, if only for memory's sake. And the tears overflowed her lovely eyes and rolled down her face like heavy drops of dew down the red heart of a rose. Mayhap, too, she went on, I shall lose my crown, 
and with my crown my life, and thine also. Sireus is very strong and very bitter, and if she prevails she will not spare. Who can read the future? Happiness is the world's white bird that alights seldom and flies fast and far, till one day he is lost in the clouds. Therefore should we hold him fast if by any chance he rests for a little space upon our hand. It is not wise to neglect the present for the future, for who knows what the future will be in Kibu? Let us pluck our flowers while the dew is on them, for when the sun is up they wither, and on the morrow will others bloom that we shall never see. And she lifted her sweet face to him and smiled into his eyes, and once more I felt a curious pang of jealousy and turned and went away. They never took much notice of whether I was there or not, thinking, I suppose, that I was an old fool and that it did not matter one way or the other, and really I believe that they were right. So I went back to our quarters and ruminated over things in general, and watched old Umslopogaas whetting his axe outside the window as a vulture whets his beak beside a dying ox. And in about an hour's time Sir Henry came tearing over, looking very radiant and wildly excited, and found Good and myself and even Umslopogaas, and asked us if we should like to assist at a real wedding. Of course we said yes, and off we went to the chapel, where we found Agon looking as sulky as any high priest possibly could, and no wonder. It appeared that he and Nyleptha had a slight difference of opinion about the coming ceremony. He had flatly refused to celebrate it, or to allow any of his priests to do so, whereupon Nyleptha became very angry and told him that she, as queen, was head of the church and meant to be obeyed. Indeed, she played the part of a Zuvendi Henry the Eighth to perfection, and insisted that if she wanted to be married, she would be married, and that he should marry her. End note. In Zuvendis, members of the royal house can only be married by the high priest or a formally appointed deputy. Alan Quatermain. He still refused to go through the ceremony, so she clinched her argument thus. Well, I cannot execute a high priest because there is an absurd prejudice against it, and I cannot imprison him because all his subordinates would raise a crying that would bring the stars down on Zuvendis and crush it. But I can leave him to contemplate the altar of the sun without anything to eat, because that is his natural vocation. And if thou wilt not marry me, O Agon, thou shalt be placed before the altar yonder with naught but a little water till such time as thou hast reconsidered the matter. Now, as it happened, Agon had been hurried away that morning without his breakfast, and was already exceedingly hungry. So he presently modified his views and consented to marry them, saying at the same time that he washed his hands of all responsibility in the matter. So it chanced that presently 
attended only by two of her favorite maidens, came the Queen Nyleptha, with happy blushing face and downcast eyes, dressed in pure white, without embroidery of any sort, as seems to be the fashion on these occasions in most countries of the world. She did not wear a single ornament. Even her gold circlets were removed, and I thought that if possible she looked more lovely than ever without them, as really superbly beautiful women do. She came, curtsied low to Sir Henry, and then took his hand and led him up before the altar, and after a little pause, in a slow, clear voice, uttered the following words, which are customary in Zuvendis, if the bride desires and the man consents. Thou dost swear by the sun that thou wilt take no other woman to wife unless I lay my hand upon her and bid her come? I swear it, answered Sir Henry, adding in English, One is quite enough for me. Then Agon, who had been sulking in a corner near the altar, came forward and gabbled off something into his beard at such a rate that I could not follow it. But it appeared to be an invocation to the sun to bless the union and make it fruitful. I observed that Nyleptha listened very closely to every word, and afterwards discovered that she was afraid lest Agon should play a trick, and by going through the invocations backwards, divorce them instead of marry them. At the end of the invocations, they were asked, as in our service, if they took each other for husband and wife, and on their assenting, they kissed each other before the altar, and the service was over, so far as their rights were concerned. But it seemed to me that there was yet something wanting, and so I produced a prayer book, which has, together with the Ingoldsby legends that I often read when I lie awake at night, accompanied me in all my later wanderings. I gave it to my poor boy Harry years ago, and after his death I found it among his things and took it back again. Curtis, I said, I am not a clergyman, and I do not know if what I am going to propose is allowable. I know it is not legal. But if you and the Queen have no objection... I should like to read the English marriage service over you. It is a solemn step which you are taking, and I think that you ought, so far as circumstances will allow, to give it the sanction of your own religion. I have thought of that, he said, and I wish you would. I do not feel half married yet. Nyleptha raised no objection, fully understanding that her husband wished to celebrate the marriage according to the rites prevailing in his own country. And so I set to work and read the service from dearly beloved to amazement as well as I could, and when I came to I, Henry, take thee, Nyleptha, I translated, and also I, Nyleptha, take thee, Henry, which she repeated after me very well. Then Sir Henry took a plain gold ring from his little finger and placed it on hers, and so on to the end. The ring had been Curtis's mother's wedding ring, and I could not help thinking how astonished the old Yorkshire lady 
would have been if she could have foreseen that her wedding ring was to serve a similar purpose for Nilepha, a queen of the Zuvendi. As for Agon, he was with difficulty kept calm while this second ceremony was going on, for he at once understood that it was religious in its nature, and doubtless bethought him of the ninety-five new faiths which loomed so ominously in his eyes. Indeed, he at once set me down as a rival high priest and hated me accordingly. However, in the end, off he went, positively bristling with indignation, and I knew that we might look out for danger from his direction. And off went Good and I, and old Umslopogaas also, leaving the happy pair to themselves, and very low we all felt. Marriages are supposed to be cheerful things, but my experience is that they are very much the reverse to everybody, except perhaps the two people chiefly interested. They mean the breaking up of so many old ties as well as the undertaking of so many new ones, and there was always something sad about the passing away of the old order. Now to take this case, for instance. Sir Henry Curtis is the best and kindest fellow and friend in the world, but he has never been quite the same since that little scene in the chapel. It is always Nilepha this and Nilepha that, Nilepha, in short, from morning till night in one way or another, either expressed or understood. And as for the old friends, well, of course, they have taken the place that old friends ought to take, and which ladies are, as a rule, very careful to see they do take when a man marries, and that is, the second place. Yes, he would be angry if anybody said so, but it is a fact for all that. He is not quite the same, and Nilepha is very sweet and very charming, but I think that she likes him to understand that she has married him and not Quatermain, Good, and Company. But there, what is the use of grumbling? It is all very right and proper, as any married lady would have no difficulty in explaining, and I am a selfish, jealous old man, though I hope I never show it. So Good and I went and ate in silence, and then indulged in an extra-fine flagon of old Zuvendian to keep our spirits up, and presently one of our attendants came and told a story that gave us something to think about. It may, perhaps, be remembered that, after his quarrel with Umslopogas, Alphonse had gone off in an exceedingly ill temper to sulk over his scratches. Well, it appears that he had walked right past the Temple to the Sun, down the wide road on the further side of the slope at Crowns, and thence on into the beautiful park or pleasure gardens which are laid out just beyond the outer wall. After wandering there for a little he started to return, but was met near the outer gate by Sereus's train of chariots, which were galloping furiously along the great northern road. When she caught sight of Alphonse, Sereus halted her train and called to him. On approaching, he was instantly seized 
and dragged into one of the chariots and carried off, crying out loudly, as our informant said, and from my general knowledge of him I can well believe. At first I was much puzzled to know what object Sorais could have had in carrying off the poor little Frenchman. She could hardly stoop so low as to try to wreak her fury on one whom she knew was only a servant. At last, however, an idea occurred to me. We three were, as I think I have said, much revered by the people of Zuvendis at large, both because we were the first strangers they had ever seen, and because we were supposed to be the possessors of almost supernatural wisdom. Indeed, though Sereus's cry against the foreign wolves, or to translate it more accurately, foreign hyenas, was sure to go down very well with the nobles and the priests, it was not, as we learnt, likely to be particularly effectual amongst the bulk of the population. The Zuvendi people, like the Athenians of old, are ever seeking for some new thing, and just because we were so new our presence was on the whole acceptable to them. Again, Sir Henry's magnificent personal appearance made a deep impression upon a race who possess a greater love of beauty than any other I have ever been acquainted with. Beauty may be prized in other countries, but in Zuvendis it is almost worshipped, as indeed the national love of statuary shows. The people said openly in the marketplaces that there was not a man in the country to touch Curtis in personal appearance as with the exception of Sereus, there was no woman who could compete with Nilepsa, and that therefore it was meet that they should marry, and that he had been sent by the sun as a husband for their queen. Now from all this it will be seen that the outcry against us was to a considerable extent fictitious, and nobody knew it better than Sereus herself. Consequently, it struck me that it might have occurred to her that down in the country and among the country people, it would be better to place the reason of her conflict with her sister upon other and more general grounds than Nilepta's marriage with the stranger. It would be easy in a land where there had been so many civil wars to rake out some old cry that would stir up the recollection of buried feuds and indeed she soon found an effectual one. This being so, it was of great importance to her to have one of the strangers with her whom she could show to the common people as a great outlander who had been so struck by the justice of her cause that he had elected to leave his companions and follow her standard. This, no doubt, was the cause of her anxiety to get a hold of good, whom she would have used till he ceased to be of service, and then cast off. But Good, having drawn back, she grasped at the opportunity of securing Alphonse, who was not unlike him in personal appearance, though smaller, no doubt with the object of showing him off in the cities and country as the great Bougouin himself. I told Good that I thought that that was her plan, and his face was a sight to see. He was so horrified at the idea. What, he said, dress up that little wretch to represent me? 
"'Why, I should have to get out of the country. "'My reputation will be ruined forever.' "'I consoled him as well as I could, "'but it is not pleasant to be personated "'all over a strange country by an errant little coward, "'and I can quite sympathize with his vexation.' Well, that night Good and I messed, as I have said, in solitary grandeur, feeling very much as though we had just returned from burying a friend instead of marrying one, and next morning the work began in good earnest. The messages and orders which had been dispatched by Nyleptha two days before now began to take effect, and multitudes of armed men came pouring into the city. We saw, as may be imagined, but very little of Nyleptha, and not too much of Curtis during those next few days. But Good and I sat daily with the Council of Generals and Loyal Lords, drawing up plans of action, arranging commissariat matters, the distribution of commands, and a hundred and one other things. Men came in freely, and all the day long the great roads leading to Milosis were spotted with the banners of lords arriving from their distant places to rally round Nyleptha. After the first few days, it became clear that we should be able to take the field with about 40,000 infantry and 20,000 cavalry, a very respectable force considering how short was the time we had to collect it and that about half the regular army had elected to follow Sereus. But if our force was large, Sereus's was, according to the reports brought in day by day by our spies, much larger. She had taken up her headquarters at a very strong town called Marstuna, situated, as I have said, to the north of Milosis and all the countryside was flocking to her standard. Nasta had poured down from his highlands and was on his way to join her with no less than 25,000 of his mountaineers, the most terrible soldiers to face in all Zuvendis. Another mighty lord named Belusha, who lived in the great horse-breeding district, had come in with 12,000 cavalry, and so on. Indeed, what between one thing and another, it seemed certain that she would gather a fully armed host of nearly 100,000 men. And then came news that Sereus was proposing to break up her camp and march on the frowning city itself, desolating the country as she came. Thereon arose the question whether it would be best to meet her at Milosis or to go out and give her battle. When our opinion was asked upon the subject, Good and I unhesitatingly gave it in favor of an advance. If we were to shut ourselves up in the city and wait to be attacked, it seemed to us that our inaction would be set down to fear. It is so very important, especially on an occasion of this sort, when a very little will suffice to turn men's opinions one way or the other, to be up and doing something. Ardor for a cause will soon evaporate if the cause does not move but sits down to conquer. Therefore we cast our vote for moving out and giving battle in the open, 
instead of waiting till we were drawn from our walls like a badger from a hole. Sir Henry's opinion coincided with ours, and so, needless to say, did that of Nyleptha, who, like a flint, was always ready to flash out fire. A great map of the country was brought and spread out before her. About thirty miles this side of Marstuna, where Sereus lay, and ninety-odd miles from Milosis, the road ran over a neck of land some two and a half miles in width, and flanked on either side by forest-clad hills, which, without being lofty, would, if the road were blocked, be quite impractical for a great baggage-laden army to cross. She looked earnestly at the map, and then with a quickness of perception that in some women amounts almost to an instinct, she laid her finger upon this neck of rising ground, and turning to her husband said with a proud air of confidence and a toss of the golden head, Here shall thou meet Sereus's armies. I know the spot. Here shall thou meet them and drive them before thee like dust before the storm. But Curtis looked grave, and said nothing. End of chapter 19